0: Or you may be hearing this again when we revisit the material in Mark 24 and Luke 21 on the radio in the future. Um, It's very intense and probably the most written about and debated about a section of this gospel. It's also one of the most abused because it's very easily abused when we don't pay very close attention to what is and is not being asked, what is and is not being answered. And most importantly, the genre of apocalypticism. <laughs> I said it right. Oh, I, I, I botched that word so often. Unfortunately, scholars who study the Bible as a lifetime work are not the go-to voices in the world of Christianity. People like Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey and... Others who have made fortunes off of selling an alternative view of this important Jewish mode of expression, sadly, are the voices that get the most attention, and why not? They portray apocalypses as lurid forms of entertainment, presenting us with promises of death and destruction and Christians being violent, lying, stealing, and whatnot in the name of God during a great tribulation. They've shaped the way that the majority reads this sort of language to the point that most people never ask, well, yeah, but how would the original audiences have read and understood the words of Daniel, Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, um John, the revelator, and others? In truth, this rarely occurs to anyone to even suppose there is another way And why would it when there are so many modern voices presenting a form of this book that appeals to our modern tastes for entertainment and even Christian nationalism? I know that personally, for me, the first books I read after becoming a Christian in 1999, I mean, besides the Bible, were the left behind books and They were written by someone whom I thought was knowledgeable. He sounded so sure of himself. And that many books sold? Can't be wrong. But books like that capitalize on American fears, values, obsessions, and appeal to what we find entertaining. It was the MCU of the Christian world for a very long time, and it did a lot of damage. (coughs) Excuse me. Sagebrush. Yuck. So, before we dive into Mark 13, uh, where I think we will be spending like five weeks, next week we will be talking about the actual destruction of the Temple in 70 of the Common Era, which followed the wars between 66 and 70, and then after that we will dive into the rest of what is called the Olivet Discourse which is the longest speech in the Gospel of Mark by far. And interestingly enough, the one part of Mark that scholars believe is the oldest thing ever written down from Yeshua's words. Dating to maybe a decade after his death, burial, and resurrection. So many people believe it is actually the document referred to by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, um, mentioned by Paul when he's rebuking the Thessalonians for being so obsessed with the second coming. It is so entirely Jewish. And of course, <laughs> all the gospels are. And so when filtered through modern fiction writers and the majority who have not studied the apocalypse as an actual literary expression of the ancient world and particularly the Jewish ancient world, not imagining that all this was easily understood by ancient people and not understanding that this wasn't rocket science for them to understand, you know, the way it actually is for us. Well, it turns into something it was never meant to be and the ancient context is entirely lost. Um, the fantastic imagery and symbolism gets deciphered in a way that would make modern movie makers proud. Or not. You know, dang, those left behind movies were horrifyingly bad. And I say that as someone who really like, love, okay, I didn't just like the books, I love them. I'm so ashamed now. I couldn't even read a page now. Ah, uh, just, it would drive me nuts. Um, but they're the product of the American imagination. An imagination that largely cannot understand the language of the oppressed and is therefore not in need of a sort of literature where God rips back the veil between himself and us and allows us to see the world events as he sees them. Today we're going to do a crash course in beginning to understand this sort of writing and hopefully demystify the mystery of it so that we can all interpret it with a lot more sanity. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All Scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can always follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of the series at theancientbridge.com. And oh boy, howdy, I'm going to have to add some books to that because of this teaching. Ah, I'm making a note for myself here, so I won't forget. I may forget anyway. Now the word apocalypse is very confusing to non-scholars. And, of course, I am not a scholar. I just play one on the radio. The word regrettably dredges up expectations of foretelling doom and gloom prophecies and harbingers of death and destruction. But that's actually the opposite of what an apocalypse is about in real life. Now, the word apocalypse comes from the Greek apokalipsis, which means... An unveiling, uncovering, or revelation. Specifically, the full disclosure of something formerly unknown. I got that from the Lexum Theological Wordbook. It does not mean the end of the world. It is not a word that historically means any sort of divine revelation. One can uncover their head, and if they were speaking ancient Greek, they would use the same word. Um, no, that does not mean that you should read First Corinthians, what, 11? Differently, okay. <laughs> um So when we see the first verse of Revelation, and we see that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, we are going to be secondhand witnesses to certain things throughout this quote-unquote revealing. And namely, we're going to see the world as Yeshua sees it from his vantage point, seen at the right hand of Yahweh seated at the right hand of Yahweh. More specifically, we're going to see the way the world of Imperial Roman oppression looks not from the human perspective as one living it and subjected to all the propaganda, but we're going to get the big picture from a heavenly and more accurate frame of reference. In a nutshell, what does God see when he looks at the situation of the various churches in Asia? What people see and feel in the midst of oppression and trial is often hopelessness or apathy, depending on how comfortable their life is and how well they're able to get along with their oppressors. But an unveiling gives those who are suffering and collaborating both hope and severe criticism by God showing the former that in the end he will win and they will be rewarded for their faithful witness and the latter that they are in extreme danger of being cast out. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, guys. When an apocalypse deals with end times events, because it doesn't always, it's called an eschatological apocalypse. As we have been in the last days since the ministry of Yeshua began... This is what Yeshua preached, the eschatological kingdom of heaven slash God that had had invaded the earth from heaven in his person. And he, Yeshua, was inaugurating a new creation reality where the promises of Jeremiah 31 would come to pass in those who believed his message and in his vindication through resurrection and attach themselves to him through allegiance. Salvation is about personal allegiance to Yahweh through his chosen Messiah, Yeshua, our King. So, what makes an apocalypse an apocalypse? Well, first of all, an apocalypse is a genre of literature that was wildly popular during the Hellenistic era. That was the Greek times, um, after um, Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, took over uh, Israel. Um, It's very influenced by both Persian and Greek um kind of thinking and, and literature. And by genre I mean the type of writing. For example, you know, we've got histories, biographies, inspiration, sci-fi, fantasy, gothic, mysteries, thrillers, fairy tales, myths, etc. When you get into a book, you generally read it through that lens. No one would read Ag- an Agatha Christie novel in the same way that they would read something by C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. And no one would read uh, C.S. Lewis Apologetic, like Mere Christianity, which is awesome, by the way, in the same way that they would read his fantasy Chronicles of Nardia or his satirical Screwtape Letters. In the same way, the Bible is filled with different sorts of literature. Theological histories, temple texts, poetries, encomium, parables, narratives, etc. All the way to apocalypses. We are with the apocalypse apocalypse. <laughs> I don't know what the plural is. Now, we would never read a psalm through the same lens or filter that we would read the parables or in the same way that we approach the Genesis 1 temple text, or covenant lawsuit sections. Or at least we shouldn't. We know that not every part of the Bible is meant to be read in the exact same way, and really can't be. When we even try, we have to butcher the text. Metaphors are great in some places, but not so much appropriate in others. Now, I can't remember which scholar it was who made this point, that you would never read The Hobbit looking for futuristic prophecies because it's simply not that kind of book. That isn't the purpose of The Hobbit. The Hobbit is fiction, fantasy, enjoyable, much better than the movie version. And there is, of course, some social commentary, but you would never try and take The Hobbit. And I think this was the example they used, in fact. So this isn't me being particularly clever. Um... So we would never try to take the hobbit and line it up with modern day figures and try to make it prophetic, which is another word we have to rescue. You're like saying, "Oh, well this world leaders Gandalf, and this world leaders Bilbo." <laughs> we wouldn't do that. But uh, an actual apocalypse, like Revelation or some parts of Daniel or fictional works like First Enoch or Fourth Baruch or others, um because it was a wildly popular way to write about the Bible, think Narnia as being a certain sort of messianic commentary as sort of a comparison to why this would be enjoyable and why it would pop up is actually being quoted in the New Testament along with popular quotes from certain philosophers and playwrights, including Euripides, the other Euripides, because there are two, Meander, uh Thucydides, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, anyway, an actual apocalypse is... A genre of writing where there are heavenly beings, angels and often archangels, directing a human being, often a prophet or another named biblical character, um, through the veil that separates Earth from the cosmic heavenly realm so they can see world realities from a more cosmic point of view. And by that, I mean how things function behind the scenes in the realm of God's forces and Satan's forces fighting against each other. All right. For example, in Daniel you have the four beasts that were written to describe the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. Um instead of the wait. Well, instead of the beautiful empires that they purported and advertised themselves to be, I just totally lost track of what I was doing reigned over by virtuous kings, doing righteousness and justice, Daniel is served to a guided tour where he sees these empires as they truly are. Beastly abominations devouring everything around them from people to lands to resources, and all in pursuit of earthly glory while calling themselves saviors. And in the East, actually portraying themselves as divine a lot of the time. But as part of the tour in a true apocalypse, their time's limited because Yahweh will not allow them to reign and devour forever, and they will be crushed. Oftentimes using the imagery of coming in a cloud to visit judgment on them, and this will be important in Mark 13. In Revelation, we see a continuance of what Daniel experienced and we see a beast rising out of the sea who is an exact composite, composite, excuse me, of Daniel's four beasts, meaning that the Roman Empire's wickedness outstrips all who went before and combines the offenses before God and against humanity all into one package. In showing this, John sees that Rome is just one more beast, not divine in nature, despite the claims to the contrary um, of both Rome, identified as the goddess Roma, and would have actually been called Roma back then, and the Caesars of having that divine status. But again, as in the case of Daniel, they will not endure, and the audience of both Daniel and Revelation are assured that their witness and endurance is eternal and not for nothing, unlike the efforts and oppression of the world empire seeking greatness and immortality through violence. In a nutshell, God wins, and through allegiance with him, you will win as well. To the people living during the times of Hellenistic and Roman persecutions, this was a much-needed reality check. Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. Prophecy, another terribly abused word. Prophecy in scripture means that someone speaks the words of God in some way. It is rarely predictive in nature and usually is delivered to people in crisis. Generally a crisis resulting from their own sins. For example, and I, I love to use this example. Um, This is one I got from John Oswald. I think Isaiah one through 39 is all the prophet saying on Yahweh's behalf, clean up your act or else what happened to the Northern kingdom will happen to you too. Isaiah 40 through 55 is the prophet saying on behalf of Yahweh, okay, your ancestors didn't listen, but I will rescue you. Stop being afraid of the Babylonians and their gods and put your trust in faith in me and only me. That's prophecy. Every once in a while, you get something specifically predictive, but that's more of the exception than the norm. Typical prophecy is, stop oppressing one another. Give up your idols. I am so sick of you guys going through the motions while neglecting me and thinking that sacrifice can save you when your hearts aren't right before me. You get the idea. Warning, warning, warning. Sometimes with an or else, or else, or else, you know, um, which is, of course, why not all predictive warnings come to pass, or predictive blessings, as they aren't a straight up, this is going to happen, but instead, God relents, or the conditions are not met, or whatever. Um, Jonah is all about that, and Jewish commentators often point this out as well. This is the way the Bible was written as a very open-ended sort of situation. Oh, I know. Okay. In a way, it's like those choose your own storybooks. Yahweh warrants, what are you going to do? If you choose A, go to page three. But if you choose B, go to page 200. And that's a big problem we see when people want to read the Bible as some sort of cut and dried, Black and white history where everything is easy, everything in it happens because it's supposed to be inerrant, according to the definition of inerrancy, that just doesn't work when we obvi- when we honestly look into the text. And it's a very modern definition, too. We set people up to fall away if they're clever enough to notice, and if they aren't, you know, willing to be bullied into accepting the easy answers. So one more word we got to look at is eschatology, before we really get going. Um Eschatology is a word that simply means pertaining to the end times, slash end of days, slash last days, etc. This is another word that can really muddle things up when we make the assumption that the end times are just entirely at some future date. As I mentioned before, Yeshua saw that he was ushering in the last days, and I hate to say it because here is another abused word, but, you know, a new dispensation um, or a new reality for humans and for the world, but, you know, where the sons of God are being revealed through being changed on the inside via the agency of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel would be preached to the ends of the earth so that Yahweh would no longer simply just be the God of one people group, but instead God over the entire world, worship by all peoples and all to- of all tongues, tribes, and nations. And um, Mark 13 has to be read with all these things very clear in mind, or we're going to read into it things that are not there, and we will ignore what is there, which generally happens. When we're just, you know, reading it without help. Okay. So going back to apocalyptic language now, uh, there's a difference between an apocalypse and scriptures which use apocalyptic imagery. An apocalypse is a genre or a type of literature and apocalyptic language is something that can and does pop up in non-apocalyptic books. I actually wrote a blog about this where I explained the difference, and I'm just going to rehash that here because it makes a whole—it makes it a whole lot easier to explain that not everything that appears weird is predictive. Uh, God uses this sort of imagery and symbolism to talk to people in dreams and even ordinary nonprofit types like me. And I guess the easiest way to um, Describe what is and is not an apocalypse is by sharing a few dreams, which can get weird. <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of my dreams here is going to ap- qualify as apocalyptic, but not as eschatological apocalypse as it is not about the last days. And, and two will not qualify as that, even though many of them have um, the same elements. And we are just... Way too close to the end for me to start in on that. So I get to tap dance for what? A minute and 20 seconds. Um, so one of the, and, and we do get in trouble. We get in so much trouble when people abuse apocalypses, when they don't study them as, as Jews understand them, because it was their literature and our um, ideas about apocalypses and everything is very much um, informed by one guy, uh, Charles Darby, in the 18th century, who, um, he really read a lot of stuff into the scripture based on the um, vision of a very sick child. Uh, what's her name? Mary MacDonald. Gosh, I can't remember now, but it just sort of steamrolled. And of course, I don't blame them for not knowing how to read an apocalypse because the Dead Sea Scrolls had not been discovered. And we have so much information now that they didn't. But now that we have this information and we know that this was a genre, we know how they understood it. We have to change the way we have to change our assumptions. Always have to be changing our assumptions in light of new Evidence. (laughs) Hi, I'm Tyler Dolan Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character and context, and this week we are talking about apocalypticism, <laughs> prophecy, and eschatology. <laughs> if I think about it, I'll tell you a joke at the end, which I shouldn't tell you. And actually, I may regret, end up regretting this entire broadcast, because, um, I do something that can be a little creepy to some people, um, and, because the best way I can think of to actually describe what is an apocalypse and what is just apocalyptic, What just use apocalyptic language and what is eschatology? is to share some dreams I've had. And don't worry, I'm not going to share. It's not like I'm a prophet and, you know, uh, they're predicting the end of the world. Sometimes God, just when we're going through a crisis, he'll give us a dream that shows us how the situation looks to him because we can't see that when we're in the midst of a trial. Sometimes we feel like we're the only one that sees our pain and stuff. And God will send us an apocalyptic type dream, you know, not the end of the world. That's not what an apocalypse means. Just to show us how things look from his point of view. So the easiest way I can even think of do this is just we're going to start. So um, the first dream, first dream is not a fully realized apocalypse but having the same revelatory kind of elements and symbolic language uh greatly abbreviated because it would be inappropriate. It's, it's bad enough. So in this dream, I was in church and I was watching myself up on stage being sexually violated by the pastor. And no, it wasn't graphic. Okay. He looked like a monster. People were watching and throwing money at him, financially supporting his actions. And I had this dream back in 2004. And um so there are no angels in this dream, but it was revelatory during a time when I felt completely rejected and abandoned by my church family, which I had been, after the pastor launched a smear campaign against me, lying about the contents of a letter I had written in privately. Um As I mentioned, there's no angel saying anything like, look at this. And there was no call for me to be to endure and be faithful. This was simply a dream showing me what the situation looked like from God's point of view with the pastor violating me. And, you know, and by continuing to pay him while knowing what was going on, the congregation as complicit It's very simple, (coughs) nothing complicated. But you needed the context of my life to understand the trial I was enduring at the time. Without the context, the dream could mean a lot of other things. Um, It helped me to endure the abuse that God had previously told me to bear quietly. This served to show me that although it seemed like the pastor was getting away with it and maybe God was playing favorites because this guy, you know, quote-unquote worked for him, that nothing was further from the truth. So although we have the -the over-the-top imagery of an apocalypse, obviously, there was no sexual violation involved. Um, so although we have that over-the-top imagery, it also lacks many elements you would find in an actual apocalypse. And you might have had dreams like this during times, you know, when you're going through a great trial. Maybe you just didn't realize what was going on. Maybe you just thought it was a nightmare. So let's move uh, forward to a more recent dream during the days of social media. And this was actually from this year. Um, I saw people slaughtering and butchering other people and turning their bodies into paint. But the paint had no color. It was beige. It was lifeless. How could so much blood and violence not be obvious in the final product? And that's what I wrote. Um, like I said, that was from this year. So again, no angelic figures, but the symbolism is again monstrous and horrifying. That's how symbolic language works. Are people actually doing this? No. But this is how God sees the slander going on on social media walls, which is where paint goes, right? He loves a good pun. People are butchering one another and plastering it all over their walls, and it looks absolutely normal, a.k.a. beige, to us, and even boring when it should be horrifying. Now, without the social media context... Someone might mistakenly interpret this dream in such a way as to believe that people are actually committing murder and turning it, turning the bodies, and it wasn't just the blood, it was everything, into paint, and we will end up with a desperately lurid conspiracy theory on our hands. Uh, but this is how God communicates in dreams. The imagery is always more severe than what we see on the surface in real life. So this is a wake-up call to see what internet slander looks like from God's point of view. All the gossip about other people and generally posing as something far more righteous. The next one actually does qualify as an apocalypse, albeit a personal one, and not for the world or the end times, and therefore not an eschatological apocalypse. Again, without the personal context of a specific event in my life, it's meaningless. And to make it easier, I'll let you know we were living out in the country at the time. This was December 2015. As a matter of fact, it was December 25th, 2015. <laughs> Don't ask me how I remember the day. Not pleasant. Um, I was standing on my porch with Mark. Mark's my husband. And a farmer driving an old truck was barreling onto my property. Almost hit my above-ground septic tank. That's what we have out in the country in Missouri, okay? Um And as he turned toward the chicken coop, because we had chickens, I realized he was, quote unquote, because I said this in the dream, driving like a damned fool. The back of his truck, I noticed, was full of dilapidated chicken coops, and he dumped them unceremoniously onto my property. It was then I noticed that Mark was carrying me in his arms, but then I realized it was not Mark, but the Lord. The farmer sped off, never even bothering to acknowledge my presence. We went over to the chicken coops, looking for anything of value, but all we found was chicken, um, you know, poop. Lots of it. I found myself on the farmer's property later in the dream, and there were a lot of tourists and spectators there. Farm animals, but trapped in cages. The ground wasn't solid, but deep mud and probably a lot of it manure. I saw a man and realized he was an angel, and so I asked him, what must I do? He told me that if I engaged the farmer... Um that I would have to do it on his turf, and I would come out filthy, but if I refrained, then I would come out clean. Suddenly, I was in a house, impeccably clean, and gleaming white on the inside, obviously not mine, and in every room, there were spotless white bathrooms. There were maybe five of these bathrooms. No matter where I went in the house, there was a place where I could get cleaned up and stay clean. So, in this one, Although it does not concern eschatological concerns, you know, the last day stuff, it had the other trappings of an apocalypse. It had a personal encouraging encounter with Yeshua, Jesus. It had an angel giving me guidance. It had a warning of what would happen if I was not faithful to the commandment I had been given as to how to handle the situation that I was still ignorant of in real life, uh, because it... It had happened, but I didn't know it yet. An encouragement as to specific promises of what would happen if I did obey. A situation that had not happened yet, it had, but I would be unaware of it for a few more hours, was being portrayed in a revelatory way where I could see how God viewed it. It functioned to let me know that I was not alone and the situation was not going unnoticed by Him. And we all need this from time to time, right? As in any apocalypse, the oppressed have an ally in God, and the oppressors are shown to be condemned, foolish, unable to deliver, able to deliver nothing but chicken poop, no matter how much of a crowd they draw or how popular they are. The fact that chicken poop in coarser language is also a euphemism for cowardice, there's that too. You know, God loves a good pun, and the Bible has more than one instance of a very coarse pun or rebuke. You know, Ezekiel 2320, okay? I'm not going to repeat it here. Uh, Not family friendly. Now, in context, someone had uploaded a attack video against me, and they were describing me and my research to a T so that it couldn't be anyone else. And they did it without naming me, and that might be the cowardice part and lied about my intentions in doing the research, and just engaged in ruthless character assassination against me, again, delivering the chicken poop to my property. Now, without that dream, I would have retaliated, and I would have felt right to do so, and I'm just being honest here. And God knew it. So like Daniel and Revelation and other apocalyptic literature, I was given God's view of what was going on, and encouragement to endure quietly with the warning that if I did not, I would come out the worse for it, and if I did, then I would come out squeaky clean, regardless of any short-term damage, and there was some, and inconvenience. Plus, it hurt like the dickens, and was humiliating, because he had a huge following, and I was barely getting started in ministry. So this would be very much like the individual letters to the Asian Church's portion of Revelation, um distinct instructions, you know, warning for me. So when we come to Revelation, which is a full-blown eschatological apocalypse because it goes from the immediate situation of the congregations of Asia Minor dealing with the various challenges and being either persecuted or by allying themselves with Rome, and both of those are problems. They just require different warnings and responses. Um... So it goes from there to future victory, and we have all the same things. But without context, they can easily be misinterpreted to be literal, like locusts and the horsemen and the beasts. But how would these images have translated to the original audience that we see the letter specifically addressed to? If we don't study the original context... We're going to go wild with a bunch of kooky interpretations that need to be revamped on a regular basis, Um like a new Mark of the Beast every year, okay? And that's just bad eisegesis, which means reading into scripture. Fortunately, we know enough now that we can discern, in the words of one of my favorite scholars, David De Silva, that even a low-level Roman official with mediocre intelligence could have read Revelation and understood the attacks against Rome herself, and specifically Nero. Now, taking an apocalypse too literally is to miss the point. Well, Nero and his successors. Now, and so is taking it out of the um, immediate historical reality. Okay, that's missing the point too. After all, no one actually drove their truck onto my property, and they didn't actually dump a bunch of old chicken coops. I'm sure the ground, their place, is not literally ankle-deep in mud and muck. I'm sure they don't have farm animals on display in cages. And no, I've never been to his farm. Nor have I ever been in a house that clean with so many bathrooms. (laughs) The important thing was the message, the clarification, the warning and the promise, and what it meant to my walk. It was a pseudo-apocalypse for me, and my promised endgame of coming out clean. Uh, which, even if you were one of the people watching and spreading that video around, you must know by now that I came out of the entire situation clean and unscathed, and even vindicated in that research he wanted to straw me over. The other guy who did it? Not so much. Now, in the same way, Revelation is a message to the churches in the midst of trial and temptation that no matter how things look to them on the ground now, God sees the situation differently and is calling them to endure with faithfulness and integrity and a spotless witness. And a further promise that in the future, there will be vindication and victory, even if they are not alive to see it. Can we glean anything from Revelation? Absolutely. Can anyone glean from the dreams I had if they were going through something similar? Yeah. But only when not deprived of the original situational context. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a story of nuclear weapons and Apache attack helicopters and miss the point of the apocalypse entirely. God wins. He sees the injustice. Be faithful and endure to the end. So, I want to quickly address some of the apocalyptic symbolism of Mark 13, which obviously isn't an angelic guided tour of what their situation looked like from behind the veil, but was specifically predictive in nature, and was all fulfilled, with the exception of the parousia, which we will be talking about later because, again, another desperately misunderstood concept in modern times, but which was a big no-duh for the first century Roman audience of the Gospel of Mark, or, for that matter, the Jewish audience of Matthew. Now, I was just studying this morning, actually, the whole coming in the clouds thing, which speaks of a visitation of judgment, which, of course, can be good or bad. We aren't literally talking about real clouds. This is apocalyptic symbolism for a cosmic event, which is something that happens, you know, on the divine side of things that we only see the results of, like we've been saying. Let's look at Isaiah 19, verse 1, Um, a prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. Okay, the coming in the clouds here is specifically associated with a visitation that brought civil war upon Egypt. Later in Nahum three, we see another visitation mentioning clouds against Nineveh. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will know by no means clear the guilty His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Obviously, this is not literal. There are other examples, but we can also tie it into the much-abused bundle of verses from 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 15. For this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord, and scholars, like I said before, believe this to be an early written account of what is now Mark 13, That we who are alive, who are left until the coming, parousia, of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. Now, This sounds like a literal account, but it has apocalyptic language that has to be taken into account. First, we have the visitation in the clouds. That means it is a time of judgment, which, for the saints, is a good thing, and for the oppressors of the world, not so much. But we also need to talk about the word parousia, which will also factor into understanding Mark 13. That word describes the physical coming of a king or a general back to a city after a victorious campaign. So this was a real Greek word that meant a real thing in their world. Um, the residents of the city would go out to meet him and treat him with full honors before bringing him back into the city with cheering and songs and celebration and sacrifice in that court. Well, he would make a sacrifice. So they would not come out of the city for the purpose of going anywhere else with that king or general. This is actually what should have happened with the triumphal entry. That was to be a parousia and instead became a full-blown snubbing by the very kind of leadership that was actually falling over themselves to greet Alexander the Great at his parousia in 331 BCE. So whenever we try to make this word mean something it never meant, we do get into trouble. The word parousia clearly means one thing and one thing only. The king has returned victorious and will be escorted into the city where he will remain with his people. In this case, either the entire world or New Jerusalem, however you want to look at it. Now, apocalyptic language is often over-the-top extra or dramatic. And we'll speak in terms of universal, i.e. worldwide catastrophe, instead of something local. And we have a ton of examples of that from the Hebrew Scriptures. There's a problem when we take these references literally, like in Mark 13, verses 19 through 20, which is often mistaken for being signs of a latter-day's tribulation instead of looking at the context, which is clearly about the coming destruction of the temple and their need to flee Judea before things get too hairy with the Romans. After all, that is the question that the disciples asked in direct reference to Yeshua's declaration that the temple would be utterly destroyed in the first two verses of the chapter. So that sets the context for everything else in the chapter. Uh, Here's that section from Mark. For in those days, there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And I don't want anyone to be upset with me. I know this is taught in parallel with Revelation, but we have to take it out of context to do so. For the first century Jews, the temple was their world, the center of their faith and religious practices, and very much something they identified with personally and nationally. I want you to think of 9-11 and how Americans felt when the Twin Towers went down. Now, Until that day, like maybe a fraction of a fraction of 1% of Americans even cared about the Twin Towers, or the Pentagon for that matter. So you can take how we all felt and multiply it by like a million. For them, it was more tribulation than they could have possibly imagined. And outside of this context, it sounds like this is worldwide, but that doesn't make any sense as part of the Olivet Discourse which is entirely about the condemnation of the leadership and what the temple had become. So we have, quote-unquote, such tribulation, and that is hyperbole because it has it had no effect on people elsewhere unless they were Jews. But for them, it was like the end of the world. It was worse than the end of the world. And the claim that, quote-unquote, no human being would be saved if the days were not cut short uh, again. And we'll get to this next week. And over the coming five weeks, when we talk about the Roman siege and the wars and rumors of wars and the flight from Judea and the abomination which caused desolation, what happened to those who fled to the Jordan um, instead of to the mountains? Uh, The melting of the gold into the temple walls and the prying apart of the stones to get to it. The cannibalism within the city due to famine. And all the false prophets and false messiahs of those times who convinced the Judeans to flee into the temple amidst assurances that Yahweh was about to destroy the Roman armies. Um, When we look at the history as recorded by um, historians like Josephus and Tacitus and early church fathers like Eusebius, Dio uh, Chrysostom, and others. This is clearly talking about what will occur within the next 40 years. And, you know, that's how this was interpreted by the early church. Uh, and the Gospel of Mark, unlike the other Gospels, was written before that happened. Pretty sure all scholars agree with that. I I don't think I've ever read one that didn't. Um, some some call for a really early date of maybe 45. The latest I've seen is 69, but it's within that time period. Um, so anyway, anyway, Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 apocalyptic language, and symbolism. Hyperbole, which is a literary form of exaggeration designed to capture the attention of the audience. And it totally works. Local events being portrayed as universal, which we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures and is most obvious in the flood story and explains why only 1% of cultures worldwide have flood myths and not more like 90%. This is a way of telling stories from a more cosmic vantage point, where everything is more dramatic and earth-shattering. So really the whole goal is to capture the tragedy of one people group more accurately when the temple was destroyed for the Jews. We cannot possibly underestimate that it must have seemed like their world had utterly ended. With the uh, death and destruction and enslavement and scattering and all that went along with it, there was nothing local about it to them. The same with us when something horrible happens. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world is dealing with because all we can see is the end of the world as we knew it. Okay? So anyway, that's what, that's what apocalypse, that's what universal language does. And it's so important to understand all this stuff. Anyway, uh, I think, yeah, next week we're going to be talking about the destruction of the temple. See you then.